0: Open to Matthew chapter 5 this morning, continue there. From time to time, you will hear us use the phrase, high view of Scripture, holding a high view of the Word of God. To have a high view of something is to regard it with respect, to esteem it, to regard it for what it claims to be, to take it seriously. An example of that in our culture is with with every election, there are people who are happy with the outcome, and there are people who are disappointed, but what we always try to maintain is a high view of the office. We are uh, taught as believers in Jesus Christ to respect authority, and so we appreciate the office, the position of governing, and respect authority in that way. A high view of Scripture means embracing God's Word for what it Claims it is as the revealed word of the living God, the Creator. It is God speaking. It is our Creator giving His truth revealed by Him. It is the belief that the Bible is all breathed forth by God through human authors, and is for us to know His mind on these things. So, to hold a high view of Scripture is means more than just me sort of occasionally cracking open the Bible when it happens to fit my schedule, it's something that I can do briefly. It means seeking to be a careful student of scripture, seeking to know what God says, to understand it, to apply it, and to seek its conviction in my life. If I know that the Bible calls me to embrace holiness and and to see sin for what it is and to grieve my sin, but I still treat some of my sinful habits as no big deal, nothing to really get worried about. If I know God's word promises me peace in the midst of life's storms, but I I imagine that my storms are just really worse, and I'm not sure that God's promises are sufficient for them. Or if I don't actually take time to regularly meditate on scripture, to read it, to ask God to help me to apply it, then I am not taking a high view of scripture. Bible may be a good book, valuable book, cherished book, something that I I pick up from time to time, but I'm not actually respecting it as my creator and my king speaking to me, giving his word to me. I, I say this from time to time in counseling. It, it, reading the Bible is, is, is not like magic. You know, you just take enough verses and it'll solve all of your problems. But the opposite is true too, and that is if you are struggling and you are discouraged in some way, you're battling temptation, or you're struggling with some major decision or some problem relationship, and you are not meditating on Scripture, you are not looking to God's Word for wisdom, then it's difficult to expect to make a wise step and be blessed in that situation if you are treating God's Word lightly. That question of one's view of Scripture is crucial. A high view of God's Word believes that it is His truth breathed out so that His authority is in all of it. Therefore, I can't afford to take it lightly or be nonchalant about Scripture. There's Lots of uh, good books and sermons that exposit portions of Scripture that that we, we hear and we embrace, and they serve a place in helping us think about the Bible. But if I am content in roughly a a sermon a week and maybe occasionally reading something devotional that tells me about what the Bible says, but I'm not actually interacting with God's word, I may still be fooling myself on this. We should be taking in the word of God and asking for it to change us because Jesus said so. In his temptation in the wilderness, when Satan said to turn the stones into bread to satisfy his hunger. You remember how Jesus answered in Matthew 4.4, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds that comes from the mouth of God. We need nutritional sustenance, but we need the word of God. Our souls need to hear from God and hear from scripture. It's only half joking when we, we talk about being hangry, you know, hunger, anger, that sort of thing, when I'm really hungry. But do you crave communion with God? Do you long to hear him speak to you through his word? Jesus taught this high view of scripture. One of the places he did is the passage we're in this morning. Matthew 5, 17 to 20 is where we are in the Sermon on the Mount. And in this passage, Jesus teaches the eternal authority of God's word down to the smallest part of it and warns against the danger of dismissing its authority because ultimately, Jesus is the focal point of God's word. That's what he gives us in this passage. Let's read it, and then we'll, we'll talk about those points. Matthew 5, 17 through 20 says, "'Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore,' Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. There's a lot to unpack in this passage, but let me have you think with me for just a moment on the historical setting in which Jesus says these things. This is very early in Jesus's ministry. The gospel at this point is, is known at best in its seed form from the Old Testament. There is there's some anticipation of a deliverer going all the way back to Genesis 3.15 and the promise that the, the woman would give birth to an offspring and that the offspring of the woman would ultimately crush Satan and defeat his power. And so there is this, this expectation of, of some kind of deliverer. But here's this man standing on this hillside who is largely unknown to this audience, who who doesn't bring a a long resume, who doesn't bring any particular rabbinical school of thought, has not been trained in any sort of theological tradition that the people are aware of. He comes to them in a very unspectacular way. He did have John the Baptist preceding him, and John says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, but we also know that happens in a very remote area. It is not widespread knowledge, and and so as Jesus stands on that hillside, for a lot of people this is First glimpse, first beginning to hear what he has to say. And he is about to say some radical things that had to shock the people who are standing there in his audience. This this section, 17 through 20, this is our transition point. We've read the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount, which is the Beatitudes, the, the character that marks members of his kingdom, and then the behavior, which is salt and light as we influence the world. But now he shifts into this portion that starts in verse 17 and goes all the way to the end of chapter five and it's characterized by this phrase jesus repeatedly will say you've heard it said but i say six times in the rest of this section jesus will say you have heard it said but i say and and when he says you have heard it said he's referring to God's law, or at least some of the strict Pharisaical interpretations of God's law. And so he's saying, You have been taught, you have heard this about God's law, but I say. Think about that again, apart from all that you know about Jesus and all that you bring to this. Set all that aside. This is your first introduction to Jesus. And, and his statement that he says over and over again is, You've heard this, but I say this. That is an incredible claim of authority. And it has to be shocking to these people because he is now saying, I know what they've taught you. I know what your religious leaders have taught you about God's law. I know what they've given you as their strict moral code, but I say this, that is, that is unsettling for any religious follower. Any Jew at that point on that hillside now has to start to wrestle with who is this guy? How how does anyone say this? How does this guy stand here and now claim authority that ultimately surpasses what we believe the law to say, or or at least to, to reinterpret it in some way? This is shocking to them, that he is saying that our religious leaders have taught us inadequately. The stunner, of course, is that last verse in the section I just read, verse 20. I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Here again, this relatively unknown teacher from from Galilee is now saying, not only is the, the instruction that the Pharisees give you inadequate, he's now asserting that the righteousness of their religious leaders is not enough for them to even be in God's kingdom. That they are enemies, if you will, of God because they are not a part of his kingdom. And so that's some of what's being generated here in terms of questions about who this guy is and what his intentions are. And so that's why verses 17 through 19 are so important. Because it's tempting if you're listening to him on that hillside to think, this could be some kind of religious nut who's here to overturn everything that we believed, who's undermining God's law. How can we possibly trust him? This audience at this point has not even begun to contemplate the notion that this rabbi from Nazareth could be God in flesh. Again, we, we know these things, we read all this into it, but that audience, they, they have not heard him say, I and the Father are one, or before Abraham was, I am. And when he eventually does say those things, they're even more up in arms at, at, at him making the claim to actually be deity, to, to be divine. For now, their question really is, okay, he's, he's taught about meekness, and purity, and righteousness, and mercy. But is this some kind of false teacher? Because why would he say what he said about the Pharisees? Why would he say what he's beginning to say about God's law, that it says this, but I say this? And so Jesus' first statement to them in verse 17 is an absolute, unwavering commitment to the eternal authority of God's Word. the first thing that he says is I have not come to abolish God's law I am I, I am committed to the eternal permanence and authority of it I am not here to dismantle it. in fact I want to assure you that what the law and the prophets say and by law and prophets we'll, we'll get back to this it's essentially shorthand for the Old Testament by what by what the scripture says, I believe it is eternally unchanging authoritative, and he says, it's about me. And again, you're on that hillside. You are pausing in that moment to try to contemplate what Jesus is saying. I want to come back to verse 17, but let's just key in on verse 18 for a moment. Truly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus says, that the authority of God rests on all of Scripture, even down to the very smallest part of it. So take a look. This is Exodus 20, verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You see the... What's the Hebrew version of the, the original Hebrew of Exodus 22? You read from right to left in Hebrew for whatever that's worth to you as you're looking at it, but you can see it there. I am Yahweh, your Elohim, who brought you from out of the land of Egypt, from out of the house of slavery. I, I've highlighted two things. I used yellow and blue to highlight two different things in this, the, the two letters in blue, two ye- letters in yellow. In yellow, there's, there's these little letters, and I think you have them in your sermon notes too, that, that look like an apostrophe, just a little sort of thing at the top there. Uh, there. There's one at the front of Yahweh, and then there's one near the end of Elohim. And, and it's the Hebrew letter Yod. It can have a Y sound, or it can have a, a short I sound. The Hebrew uses all these little dots and stuff to kind of accent, so to, to help you understand how it's best pronounced there. Um, but the point is this. That is a small letter. That is the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. It's comparable to the iota, which in the Greek is the smallest letter in the Greek. And what Jesus is saying is the smallest letter. When he says iota, or some would say jot and tittle, he is referring now to this tiny little letter that they would have been familiar with all over their Hebrew scrolls. And then he Also says, if you look at the the two that are in blue, the two letters that are in blue, looks like a backwards C. Uh, The one to the right side, again, going from right to left, is kaf. Just looks like a full backwards C, kind of a K or C-H sort of sound from the Hebrew. And then the other one that's in the word for slavery at the very end is bait, which is either got a B or a V kind of sound, depending on the accent markers. Those two letters look identical except that bait, the last one, has just a little tail that comes off the back part of the backward C. That's what's meant by a tittle. That's what's meant by this little tiny mark, this pen stroke that just separates this letter. What Jesus is, is doing by saying this is making it unmistakably clear that even the smallest portion of the law and the prophets, The smallest element of the Old Testament stands permanently as God's word and cannot be changed. It is authoritative. It cannot be set aside. And that's what he's saying. I've I've not come to abolish down to the very smallest part of the law and the prophets. Jesus is saying what Paul will later affirm in 2 Timothy 3.16 when he says, all scripture is breathed by God. It is the product of the inspiration of God working through human authors. All scripture comes from God. John will say this in in the last book of the Bible, in Revelation chapter 22, as he's approaching the end of the prophecy that takes us not only as chronologically last in terms of New Testament revelation, but also points us to the eternal kingdom, takes us the furthest into the eternal kingdom. And at the end of Revelation 22, John casts a warning on anyone who would add to or take away from the words of the book of this prophecy. There's no dismantling nullifying abolishing any portion of God's word Jesus in John 10:35 said scripture cannot be broken no one who listened to Jesus and who heard him teach could ever understand him to be saying that well portions of scripture might not be valid portions of scripture are really not all that important No one would take Jesus seriously in in, in terms of the the attitude that we sometimes hear today that says, well, you can't can't really take the Bible literally. You can't take the Bible word for word. Well, he's not even saying word for word. He's saying smallest letter, tiniest stroke of the pen. Take seriously that it is indeed God's law. All of Scripture is from God. All is profitable. All speaks with his authority. That's what moves him to the warning in verse 19. That's why verse 19 then begins, therefore, in light of what he's just said about the authority and permanence of God's word, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Since scripture is permanently authoritative is God's word is, is declared to be reliable than anyone in his kingdom who tries to nullify a portion of it. To say that that doesn't really matter, we can disregard that part of scripture is being disobedient. So if you're, to, if you're going to play the pick and choose game with biblical commands and say, well, of course, that one's valid. That one should last for all time. But this one, culturally, we've changed, we've evolved. And so this one is irrelevant at this point. You are parting ways with Jesus in terms of his understanding of Scripture and what he taught people about Scripture. And, and it's interesting here that, that he actually warns of this threat against Scripture from within his kingdom. Because he speaks of it being done by someone who becomes the least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever does and teaches them is called the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. What what verse 19 is, is beginning to introduce is a concept that we will see in several places throughout the New Testament, and that is there are some level of rewards and lack of rewards in the eternal kingdom of God. We don't fully understand what that is, but it is for his followers. He's speaking about those who are disciples of his, and there is some some form of honor in heaven for those who are faithful in obeying and teaching God's word in its fullness and holding on to the authority of God's word in speaking that, but there's also some sense of loss for those who do otherwise. It's reminiscent of Second John 8 that warns that there is something less than full reward. The the real distinction he makes here is not not just within the kingdom between those who who might play with his word or try to invalidate parts of it and those who teach it in its fullness, but the real distinction is the contrast to to verse 20, and that is the ones in verse 19, they are at least in the kingdom of heaven. Verse 20, he now speaks of the scribes and the Pharisees and makes it clear that they are outside of the kingdom of heaven. There are those who, frankly, he's, he's describing now as false teachers. Who, who try to teach you religion and righteousness, and, and they don't even get it. They are outside of the kingdom of heaven. The point of verse 19, though, is diminishing God's word as consequences. It is, it is dangerous and wrong to say, well, God is love, and so how could God possibly condemn this sin? How could, how could God hold this as being sinful behavior? Man man just is different now, and, and and so this part of God's word just shouldn't stand in the same way as it did 2000 years ago. Jesus warns against relaxing. In other words, nullifying, abandoning in some way, acting as if it doesn't matter, even the smallest, the least, as he says, of these commands. He teaches God's authority down to the very smallest part of God's word. And the reason he does this takes us back to verse 17, which is because it is ultimately all about him. Jesus is the focal point. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. That phrase, the law and the prophets. We hear that, or we hear the law, the prophets, and the writings, or the law and the prophets and the Psalms, all of which are shorthand for the Old Testament. We see this three other times in the book of Matthew. Jesus uses law and prophets to refer to the Old Testament. In John 1 Philip says to Nathaniel, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Paul, in his preaching twice in Acts, will use the phrase law and the prophets to say, this is the basis from which I am now teaching you uh, uh, about this savior, about this deliverer. And then Paul in Romans 321 also writes that the law and the prophets bear witness to the righteousness of God that came to man through Jesus. So the law and the prophets are pointing us back to the Old Testament. And Jesus is saying, I have not come to dismantle the scriptures I've not come to upend them. I've not come to to, to say that somehow um, you need to just throw them out or we need to start over again. I have come to fulfill them. That's the important phrase, really. Jesus has come to fulfill these. When Jesus said he had come to fulfill the law and the prophets, he's making it clear that the Old Testament is authoritative, reliable, true, on its own, but it does not stand on its own in the sense that it is pointing forward to something. It is all intending to point us forward to a further revelation from God, which is the person of Jesus Christ. The law and the prophets serve to light the way to someone greater, someone who would bring out the fullness of its promises the one who would fully reveal what God's law was pointing to and what the prophets were anticipating, the one who, and and we'll see this over the course of the next few weeks as we go through these next sections, who even takes the law that they had known, the law against, for instance, adultery, and says, let me fill this out for you so you understand how this speaks to the heart, adding even more in terms of, of bringing his fullness, his understanding to it, his teaching to us. But the Old Testament is prophetic, it awaits someone to bring it to completion. We know that as well from Matthew 11. Jesus is being questioned about John who baptized him. And Jesus says this in Matthew 11:13: for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. We don't always think of the prophetic aspect of the law. We think of the law in terms with our New Testament understanding of exposing sin, which it does, and condemning and showing guilt and pointing us to our need for Christ, all of which it does. But it also emphasizes here that God's law prophesies. So when we go back to the the Torah, the to Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, we get we get history, we get God's creation, man's fall, God's. God's punishment against man, we also then get the Mosaic law, the instruction that that God gives, that he requires of his people. But Jesus says all of the Old Testament has this prophetic function. And now with his coming, these things are being fulfilled in him. In John 5.39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. From beginning to end, the Old Testament anticipates. It anticipates one who is greater than Moses. The one who was, if you will, the the legend in these days. When they look back, Moses was held in great esteem. And yet the Old Testament anticipates one who comes who will be greater than Moses. The Old Testament anticipates one who will come and give a rest that is better and perfect as compared to the rest that Joshua had when he led them into the land and they had something of a rest. No, the the, the Old Testament is anticipating a great eternal rest. The Old Testament is anticipating one who would give a better, more perfect sacrifice than even Abraham offering up Isaac or the priests who go to the altar and and offer sacrifices time and time again. This one would give a better and perfect sacrifice. The Old Testament anticipates a, a king who is perfect in righteousness, who is perfect in all ways, far more than King David could ever be, for as much esteem as they held David in. The Old Testament anticipates this great coming king who would be perfect in wisdom. Solomon was the man when it came to wisdom. Solomon was the wisest man on earth. And the Old Testament anticipates one who personifies wisdom. He is wisdom. All that he says is filled with wisdom. The Old Testament anticipates one who weeps over his people because of their sin and their rebellion even more deeply than Jeremiah wept over the people. The Old Testament anticipates one who would proclaim righteousness and deliverance from sin in a way that that no Old Testament prophet could ever proclaim. For as much fire and strength as we see from Isaiah and the other prophets, and as much as they are urging people toward the righteousness of God... The Old Testament anticipates a great prophet who, when he spoke, the people would be in awe of his authority because they would hear him proclaiming truth from his own perfect righteousness. The Old Testament anticipates, it, it prophesies, one who would come and who would dwell among God's people in such a way that the tabernacle and the temple, the things that were so important, they would now understand were merely shadows that were pointing to the one who would bring us into the intimate presence of God. The Old Testament anticipates one who would institute a covenant that is better, with better promises than than any of the covenants before because ultimately the Old Testament anticipates one who would give the one perfect sacrifice for sins. He would give his own body and blood as a substitute for us. And having offered that sacrifice, He would then sit down at the right hand of the Father and the work of redemption would be finished and accomplished in Christ. The Old Testament is urging us forward that all of these sacrifices, all of this prophecy, all of this looks forward to one who is coming who will bring it to completion. And so God's word stands for all time because it is fulfilled now perfectly in Jesus. Near the end of the Gospel of Luke after Jesus' resurrection. You remember the scene of the disciples who were on the road to Emmaus. And Luke says that their eyes were kept from recognizing the fact that suddenly Jesus was in the midst of them and walking with them. And they had this stranger who has come alongside and and they acknowledged their confusion. They don't know about his resurrection, and they certainly can't make sense of his crucifixion. How is it that the one who we thought was come to deliver us was crucified by the Romans? This This doesn't seem to fit anything we anticipated. And what does Jesus say in Luke 24? Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus, the one who said that the law and the prophets prophesied of him, gives a wonderful exposition that we would all love to see, maybe someday in heaven, the video of this exposition of him explaining to them how the Old Testament, piece by piece, smallest letter, smallest stroke of the pen, how it is all pointing to him. The focal point is Jesus. Now, one lingering question you might have, especially in light of verse 17. I've come not to abolish, but to fulfill. How do we square then that assurance from Jesus that he has not come to abolish or nullify the law with, with the fact that there are ceremonial and dietary laws that, that clearly are given in the Old Testament in, in the Mosaic Code that we no longer follow. There are commands about food and clothing and purification rites and sacrifices and feasts that are not followed by today's believers in Jesus Christ. The answer to that, first of all, is to remember the setting in which Jesus is in in Matthew chapter 5. This is the beginning of ministry, and at this point, no one in that crowd grasps the full import of who he is or how he is going to die on a cross. This is all still for them to be understood and revealed, and the work of redemption is to be accomplished. And so there are are implications still to be unwrapped before them when the early church begins. But but the truth of the matter is ultimately the death of Christ— changes everything at the at the suffering and death of Jesus Christ everything is changed and the the greatest picture that we have of that Matthew describes when Jesus is being crucified and as he is dying the veil in the temple that sets off the holy of holies the most holy place of the temple the place that the priest could only en- enter once a year and with fear and trepidation to offer sacrifice that veil to that most holy place is torn in two as the Savior dies to make it clear that now everything has changed. The Jewish sacrificial system, so ingrained to them from the Mosaic law on, was meant to show them the penalty of sin, the cost of sin, the horror of sin, and what it meant. But it was meant to continue to remind them there needs to be a perfect sacrifice who once and for all opens the way to God and to His righteousness. And that is done in Jesus. Amen. And that's what changes it. That's what what ends the sacrificial system. That's what changes the feasts. The the, the Passover. The Passover proclaimed that that there's there's one who who passes over sin and provides life and who rescues from, from death, and that is Jesus. The Passover anticipates the Lamb of God, who will give Himself, and His blood will pay the cost, the penalty for our sin. The Feast of Tabernacles. It recalled how they dwelled in tents when they were in the wilderness. Now the Feast of Tabernacles with the death of Jesus Christ tells us there is coming an eternal rest. We will dwell with God and we will be in His care and in in, in His presence forever. The Feast of Pentecost the one that celebrated God's blessing at the harvest. We see transformed with the early church in Acts chapter 2 to now become a feast of harvest that recognizes that the gospel of Jesus Christ is no longer here just in Jerusalem and Israel. It is now going to the ends of the earth. Every people will hear that every tongue and tribe and nation will will be embraced with the gospel of Jesus Christ. They will hear of what Jesus has done, and he will save people from out of every tongue and tribe and people. The death of Jesus changes everything. And because of that, because it's no longer just Israel and the gospel's now going out to the world, the civil, the dietary laws that govern life for the Jewish people, all of that's changed. There is no further, and it's the rest of the New Testament that unfolds this, how these things are no longer obligations. These are no longer things to call us out as a peculiar people. What calls us out now as a peculiar people is Christ is in us. The Savior through his Spirit dwells in us and shines his light forth through us as we are salt and light. And so there's no more ethnic boundary. And you remember this well in Acts chapter 10. Peter's called to go to a Gentile home and proclaim the gospel. And Peter is in turmoil You want me to go into a Gentile home and fellowship with Gentiles? And that's probably going to even mean they're going to offer me Gentile food. And that's unclean. And what does God do? Gives Peter a vision of unclean animals under the Jewish law. And what does he say to Peter? Go, kill, and eat. This is no longer unclean. He says, don't call unclean what I call clean. It all changes at the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus fulfilled the law. He obeyed it perfectly, and he is the sacrifice who could perfectly satisfy its demands. At his, at his baptism in Matthew chapter 3, remember John Box for just a moment at the idea of baptizing, baptizing Jesus. I need to be baptized by you. Jesus replies, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus is perfectly righteous. Jesus abides by God's law. Jesus fulfills God's law. Jesus teaches the depths of God's law as we'll read over the course of the next few weeks. It is the contrast that's being established here is between this righteous one and the righteous pretenders who are the scribes and the Pharisees. This first sort of glimpse of it here in the Sermon on the Mount is that your your religious leaders have been, they've come up with this system where they took God's law And and they did what's the easy thing to do. They focused it purely on the outward. They they didn't key in on the depravity of man's heart or man's sinfulness, that, that man had this internal need for transformation. What they did is they came up with a scorecard that said, if you just do these behaviors and you do enough of them, they get checked off and you look good because everybody can see them. And then they can see your righteousness and you will have scored well before other people. And that's why Jesus then ends his, his introduction to this section with, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So what does that mean for you and I? I say this especially if this this your first time here, or this the first time you're, you're thinking about Jesus Christ, you're thinking about what this means for you. And, and, and does this mean, h- how does my righteousness exceed the scribes and Pharisees? What, what do I need to do? What, what does this mean for me? H- how do I somehow please God in order to be a part of the kingdom of heaven? D- listen, left, left to our own devices, we are no different than the scribes and Pharisees. We are people who like to check boxes. Give me a scorecard, show me 10 steps, and I'll do my best to hit at least seven or eight of them. And that, that, should, that should weigh the scale, right? In the right direction. The answer to this is in Romans chapter 8. The chapter that begins there is, therefore now no condemnation, condemnation." amen, for those who are in Christ Jesus. All right, verse 3, Romans 8. God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Here's, here's scripture's answer. How does your righteousness exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees? First, we know that God's law reveals our guilt. It, it condemns us, and it says you are worthy of death. That is God's judgment for your sin. But God poured out his wrath on his Perfect son Jesus. That's what verse 3 means when it says, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. Jesus was sinless, but in having our sin heaped on him, he is now identified with sinful flesh. Our sin is imputed to Christ so that in him, our sin now is punished by the wrath of God. And so for that, that. On the cross, that time on the cross, Jesus is now identified as sinful flesh so that the requirement of the law, which is the penalty of death, is borne out in Him because He has sacrificed Himself for us. So the requirement of the law, which is the penalty of death, is satisfied now because Jesus suffered in our place. And because He has done so, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Him. Who are trusting in him. That can only be because the righteous requirement of the law was met in Christ, and by grace through faith, it is appropriated by you and I. It is applied to us, and we now are no longer under his condemnation. And so, what must you do? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, confess the fact that you are a sinner that you need Jesus Christ, that he, the sinless son of God, gave himself for you and died in your place and rose again. Believe in Jesus. The marvel of this in Romans 8 is when it says in verse 4, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Us. Why? Because of what Jesus has done. Because we now have the righteousness of Christ, and by virtue of what Christ has done on the cross, you and I now are able to fulfill the righteous requirement of the law in a way the scribes and Pharisees never could, because we are now unable to obey God's law. We are now able to obey God's commands and to do so joyfully. We've been set free to obey the law and do what the scribes and Pharisees couldn't do because they rejected Jesus Christ. His commands now are our delight, His instructions to us. We cherish and we want to know by the work of His Spirit, we can obey them. We can, with the psalmist in Psalm 119, lift our hands to His commandments and love them, the psalmist says. Oh, how I love your law. That's that's what we are now enabled to do because of the work of Christ. And the righteousness of Christ. Our righteousness exceeds that if you are trusting in Jesus Christ. Your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees because it is Christ's perfect righteousness that has been imputed to you. And we can now rejoice in our Savior and celebrate how God's Word points to Him and see Jesus throughout the Scriptures and see how Scripture points to Him and urges us to see Him in the Scriptures. And we can rely on this book and its authority and its trustworthiness we can praise God for His truth and for His Son who has come to save us. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we are here out of gratitude for what You have done. That You, the, the King of glory, would set aside the, all the privileges and prerogatives of heaven, the, the worship due You in heaven that you would leave all of that in order to take on flesh, to ultimately be identified with sinful flesh by bearing our sin in your body, that you might give yourself as a sacrifice, as the lamb for our sin. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for reminding us again of the the joy of Scripture the joy of seeing in it our Savior at work, the joy of the anticipation of the coming Deliverer, the joy of the hope of this Savior who is coming again, who will come clearly as Lord and King, and every knee will bow and tongue confess Him as Lord. Thank you that we see you from beginning to end. Father, I pray that if there's anyone listening to this here online, that Lord is wrestling with, who you are, what you have required of them, I pray that today they would see that Jesus dying on the cross accomplished the work of rescuing slaves to sin, those under its penalty of redeeming them, of buying them out of that slavery. If they will run to you and trust in you and by faith receive the salvation that only you can give, Pray, Lord, that you would be at work to produce repentance and faith, turning from sin and believing in Jesus. And Father, would you please, through our church, would you be pleased to cause us to stand firm on your word, that we would follow after our Savior and his commandments, and that we would not sell short scripture, that we would not nullify it by our lives or our teaching but that we would uphold it, obey it, and teach it gladly, joyously, as a people who love you and who have been loved and are held by you. Please, Lord, we pray that your spirit would be at work in the life of this body of believers, causing us to embrace, to hold to, to teach your word, and to proclaim the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to all around us.